0: Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the first segment of today's show, we'll be talking all about the world of lost films movies that span the entire century plus history of the art form that, despite their contemporary popularity or historical significance, are seemingly lost in all but reputation and intrigue, unavailable for any kind of viewing, even in today's age of on demand streaming. I'll be joined by film critic and journalist Phil Hall for a discussion of his new book, In Search of Lost Films, which offers a deep dive into the titles and lore surrounding some of the most sought-after absences in the history of cinema. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman and New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a review of Loving, a new movie from director Jeff Nichols that tells the real life story of Richard and Mildred Loving, played by Joel Edgerton and Ruth Naga, an interracial couple from rural Virginia whose quiet persistence in living together and raising a family in defiance of the state's anti-miscegenation laws helped break such racist legislation through a landmark Supreme Court case in 1967. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the studio Phil Hall. Phil has had a lengthy career writing about and working in the film world, and I'll rattle off a few of his many credits. He's currently a contributing writer at the websites Cinema Crazed and Film Snobbery, the host of a podcast called The Online Movie Show with Phil Hall. His film writing has appeared in the New York Times, New York Daily News, and Wired, among other publications. And he's the author of six books, including The History of Independent Cinema and The Greatest Bad Movies of All Time. His latest book, which is the subject of today's conversation, is called In Search of Lost Films. Phil, welcome to Deep Focus. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me here.
0: Okay, so why don't we kick off by just having you introduce this book to me and the listeners. What's it about and, and why did you... Right In Search of Lost Films.
1: Well, as the title would suggest, In Search of Lost Films is a journey into an aspect of film history that many people are not aware of. And that's the disappearance of many films from the beginning of the film era back in the late 1890s to as recently as the 1970s. Entire films have disappeared completely. We don't have a print of them. In some cases, we don't even have a photograph from the film. We don't know what it looked like. In other areas, there have been very significant segments from films that have been cut out over the years and have disappeared. And there are also earlier versions of films that uh, underwent changes, uh, footage that is historically significant that was removed prior to release and has vanished. So we're never able to truly understand or appreciate what was lost. In the the opening
0: chapters of your book, you lay out a few mission statements, and I want to uh, present two here and get your uh, kind of reflections on them. One is that you say that there's no such thing as a permanent creative medium, and that's kind of where you end up in your book as well. That As we reflect on art, especially art that is no longer available in anything other than people who have written about the art or the kind of secondary material that existed around it, we have to remember that everything that people create also sometimes, often, always disappear— Um, Another one is that despite the fact that this rule maybe applies to all human creative endeavors, you do single out film history as uniquely marred by very big, very important absences. You cite a Library of Congress study from 2013 that says that uh, around probably 75% of movies made in the silent film era from 1912 to 1929 are missing. And so I wonder if you could reflect on, on both of those two for a second as you talk about Um, both what you were looking to accomplish in writing this book um, and what you ultimately found. Both every creative medium loses its art, but film is somehow unique in how much and how important its absences are.
1: Well, film is a relatively new art form. If you're going to measure it against painting or sculpture or architecture or jewelry design, uh, the film industry really began in the 1890s. And from that period to where we are today, uh, an absurdly high number of films are gone. And no other medium has that situation where you don't have uh, a multitude of paintings or a multitude of sculptures or a multitude of books that have vanished in such a short period of time. Uh, The second point, the Library of Congress was talking about U.S. films. Uh, We have to remember film is an international medium and an absurdly high number of films from Europe, Latin America... South Africa, the Middle East, certainly from Asia, have gone as well. And so this is part of the worldwide global uh, cultural heritage. And there are huge gaps in trying to appreciate film history because groundbreaking works in terms of the the early days of films, uh, early developments in sound film, color film, widescreen film are gone. And how are we supposed to understand where we are today in terms of appreciating films if we don't know where we came from?
0: I'd love to get some some kind of key terms defined at the top of our conversation. The big one being lost, a, a lost film. What What is a lost film and, and how are films lost? How is this, again, as you identify film is such a collaborative endeavor. This isn't someone sitting down and writing something and kind of exerting their kind of primary individual experience or um, uh, skills upon a work of art. But this is something that is a vast collaboration between producers, distributors, marketers, exhibitors, hundreds, if not thousands of people touch a movie uh, over the course of its lifetime. And so uh, what what is a lost film and, and how does it happen?
1: That's what makes the disappearance of film all the more remarkable because If a painting is lost, well, there's only one person doing the painting. If a story or a book is lost, there was only one person writing the book. Film is a collaborative medium, and you have a multitude of people on both sides of the camera, and also in the business aspect, distributing the film, promoting the film, etc. How do films disappear? Well, the main problem was prior to uh, 1950, most films were shot on something called nitrate film. And when projected, it looked beautiful on the big screen. And that's one reason why films became very popular very quickly, because if you'd go to the old Nickelodeons at the turn of the 20th century, you would look up onto this large screen, and there were these beautiful images projected there, and people were hypnotized by it, and they still are for that matter. The problem with nitrate film comes in storage. If the film is improperly stored, it either turns to dust or goo, or in extreme cases, when it's in a very, very hot environment it could actually burst into flames and in fact many films are gone forever because of fires in vaults created by nitrate film a lost film as the name would say, is lost for good we, we can't retrieve it we are if we're trying to in many cases and a lot of lost films have been recovered but for the most part no print of the movie exists the negatives are gone and these were films that were made, uh, as I stated, basically, a lot of them were relatively recent. We have, many people think of lost films as uh, old silent movies, but we have films from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even the early 70s, where we don't have any copies of these films anymore.
0: One of the things that I so appreciate about this book is that it does, um, so it does dive into the two kind of key uh, kind of catalysts for the loss of films are Yes, related to nitrate. There's fire and there's neglect. Um, but you also get into why movies, especially in the first half of the 20th century, especially at the at the turn of the century, at the very beginnings of this medium's existence, why they were neglected. And there are a number of different reasons, but one that you single out is because the people creating the movies uh, at in the 1890s, in the very early 1900s, thought of this as, as disposable entertainment, as entertainment that was not necessarily meant to last, meant to be preserved and studied. And that kind of approach to uh, the creation of entertainment or art uh, does not necessarily make for the the most kind of attentive of storage and the most attentive of preservation. Um, is that something that you found in your in your research of these lost films, that it wasn't just a matter of the technology and the kind of material of which film was made, but the kind of cultural and industry-wide approach and kind of perspective on the art was as important in determining whether or not something was lost or or preserved.
1: It certainly played a very big role in many cases, and not just in the early silent years, as late as uh, the 1940s, prior to the advent of television. Uh, This was a problem. You have to realize that... We're going back to a time before TV, before home video and DVD. Movies were meant to be seen in a theater. And after the theatrical run, what do you do with the film? If it's a wildly popular movie, maybe you could re-release it in a couple of years. But if it was just a run-of-the-mill film, what was considered run-of-the-mill at the time, you could do what with it? I mean, you could store it in a warehouse, but you're not making any money off of it. And this became particularly troublesome in the late 1920s, when silent films were on the way out and sound films came in, a lot of producers in Hollywood and elsewhere in the world felt, well, the silent films have no more commercial value. So, and storage actually costs a lot of money, particularly if you're renting warehouses and vaults. So many of these films uh, wound up actually being thrown out. And looking back today, you're thinking, what were they? What could they possibly have thought of at the time? Did they think this was a good idea? But if you're looking at it through a 1929 mind frame, yes, it was a very good idea because there was no more audience for films that were considered to be obsolete.
0: Yeah, this is something that uh, Walter Kerr covers in The Silent Clowns, in 19, uh, a book from 1975 in which he talks about the perversity of how the years 1927 to 1929 were uh, Represented both the maturity of silent film as an art form, but also represent some of the highest density of lost films because the industry was undergoing this tumultuous transition from silence to sound. And despite the quality of the work or supposed quality of the work, there just was, there was so much panic about making sure that studios were producing the new hot ticket item, which were sound films and anything that wasn't a sound film uh, was not top priority.
1: And the funny thing is, too, we actually have a lot more surviving films from the early days of silent movies as opposed to the later 20s, the tail end of the silent era. And the reason for that is a lot of the films from the 1890s and the early 1900s and even into the early 1910s, they were actually preserved on paper print. And the reason that was done is because there was a lot of bootlegging back then and For the producers to maintain their copyright, they needed to register it with the Library of Congress. But rather than send nitrate print to the Library of Congress, they created a paper print of the film. Uh, The good news, of course, is the films survived. The bad news is basically trying to bring the film from the paper print back to the safety film stock that we use today. And there's a degradation in the visual quality. So if you look at films today that were made in that early era... They look somewhat crummy, but that's not what people saw when they went to the cinemas back in uh, that distant era. They saw much, much different visual quality. But unless uh, we fiddle about with uh, computers to try to uh, clean up the image, we are stuck really with uh, some cruddy-looking old films.
0: So if we've already covered the kind of thoughtful, accurate, h- historical uh reasons for why films are lost which is more the neglect category i want to make sure to get to the cinematic action-packed uh kind of low attention span but very visually engaging reason which is fire and you cover a number of big fires important fires over the course of film history devastating fires to and i say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek but the, there were very important conflagrations at studio lots in repositories you reference one in 1937 at a Fox facility in New Jersey, one in the 1940s at MoMA. This history of lost films is also a history of kind of exploding films.
1: That's because of the nitrate uh, film. It was uh, highly combustible. And the weird thing about this, and that's one thing I could never quite figure out, the problem with nitrate was uh, very familiar as far back as the early 1900s. And yet no effort was made to create a substitute for theatrical release prints, because the nitrate on the print, when projected, as I said, looked beautiful. But there were problems going way, way back uh, with films jamming in projectors and creating fires and, and whatnot. And of course, the uh, one of the first major losses was the 1937 Fox vault fire, uh, which destroyed nearly all of Fox's silent film output, as well as many early sound films, not only created by Fox, but also other small studios that stored their films and their negatives at the uh, the Fox warehouse that went up.
0: So I'm eager to get to some of the films or lost films themselves that you cover in this book, but I want to dwell for a second more about uh, the kind of categories and definitions. And, and one question that I'm very interested in is how you approach studying lost film and also writing about lost film. And I think you'd give two great examples over the course of your book. One is Frank Thompson's book from 1996 called Lost Films. Um, and another is James Agee's essay from 1949 in Life magazine called Comedy's Greatest Era. Um, now, Thompson, as an historian, is writing about movies that he has never seen. And so he goes to press books and magazine articles and studio story departments. And he's going through the kind of archival material and whatever press you know photographs are available to... Describe the synopses of each movie, and then also give a bit of a production history. A. G., who's a bit closer to the time that he's describing, presumably has seen a fair number of movies that he's writing about, even if his readers and audiences haven't seen. And so he brings a certain, you know, he a clarity to his writing and exuberance, you know, intense enthusiasm for the comedic abilities of Chaplin and Keaton and Lloyd and Langdon. And so I wonder, as you know, if those are kind of two different strategies about writing about movies that people can't see. How did you approach uh, researching this when you couldn't watch the movies and and writing about it in a way that's engaging?
1: Researching it was very difficult because, as you said, I'm writing about films that I can't see. So I have to rely on the press coverage for the films. I have to rely on historical documents related to the filmmakers, the the cast and crew involved in the films. Also take into consideration the historic value of the films, movies that... uh, would mean a great deal to us today uh, that we're not able to see, for example, uh, The Way of All Flesh, which was a 1927 film starring Emil Jannings. And this is notable because this is the only Academy Award-winning performance that no longer exists. So anybody who loves the Oscars is going to be really disappointed because this is one Oscar-winning performance you'll never be able to, uh, to appreciate Edgy's work was very important because he was one of the first people to advocate uh, taking a look back at the older films. His essay was published in 1949, and by that point in time, the silent films were uh, mostly forgotten and weren't particularly thought of with any great degree of respect uh, by the general public and also by many film historians. And so he demanded that uh, a second look be given to the likes of Chaplin, who at that time was going through a lot of uh, difficulties because of his political affiliations, as well as Buster Keaton, who was widely perceived as just being a has-been due to various professional and personal problems, Harold Lloyd, whose work had been out of circulation for many years and he had been retired at that point, and Harry Langdon, uh, who had passed away several years earlier and whose work was also out of circulation, So it's really, uh, in many ways, he is the stepping stone for modern film scholarship, because without him saying, you know, we have this wonderful cultural heritage that we're ignoring, uh, a lot of people would just have happily looked ahead as opposed to looking back and realized what had been accomplished.
0: Before we head into the movies, I want to say that you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Film critic and writer and journalist and historian uh, Phil Hall uh, about his new book *In Search of Lost Films*. So, Phil, you have structured this book in a very deliberate way uh, around different kind of categories of lost films. You focus on uh, lost careers, kind of individual actors and directors whose you know the in, almost the entirety of their cinematic output uh, has been lost, despite the um, the uh, memory of their uh, reputation and the importance of their uh, you know, their reputation in this history. You focus on missing silent films, missing sound films and missing sequences. And I wonder if we could dive into maybe at least a, a movie or two or a person or two from each of those. And I can throw some names that stuck out at me from each category if, if that would be a good launching off point. But you you start off with Lost Careers in which you cover um, the career of Theta Barra. Um, could you tell us a bit about uh, Theta Barra and who she was, why, why she was important to movies and and how she's remembered now.
1: I think her name was pronounced Theta Barra. It could be Theta either, either way, but um, Theoda Barra is uh, important because she was the first movie sex symbol, and she was uh, a girl from Ohio who had gone to New York seeking success on the stage, and she was spotted by a Fox uh, talent scout at the time Fox was making its films in New York, and they changed her name. She was originally Theodosa Goodman, and she became Theta Barra, and they created this uh, somewhat nonsensical backstory to the Theta Barra uh, enigma and had all sorts of publicity stunts and put her into these uh, what were called vamp roles. She was the bad girl who ruined men and they loved every second of it. And audiences uh, starting in 1914 with the movie A Fool There Was fell in love with her and she made uh, several dozen films for Fox between 1914 and 1918 her popularity declined after that, but historically she is uh, very important because she was Hollywood's first, or actually we should say the film industry's first manufactured star, and she was uh, her persona has been played on for decades afterwards. Any actress who's uh, so bad she's good, she, you can trace the roots back to Theda Barra. Unfortunately, only about four of her movies survive. Uh, Because she had worked at Fox, and Fox stored its silent films in that warehouse in New Jersey that went up in flames in 1937, we don't have uh, the majority of Theda Barra's work anymore. And a lot of these films would have been very interesting to look at today. She was uh, uh, the first Cleopatra. It was a 1917 epic. Uh, The pictures from the film were really astonishing. It must have been a marvelous production. She had also played Carmen in a silent version of uh, the famous opera, uh, she had played Salome as well, and it's a shame, because uh, we'd love to just see what uh, she was capable of, because the films that do survive, including A Fool There Was, by contemporary standards, they're not the best films, and you can't help but think that something better was out there, but uh, at the moment, we're not able to access that. In this first
0: chapter, in which you focus on lost careers uh, of actresses and actors like Theda, Barra, uh, Theda Barra, I I wonder you know, how you think their reputation, uh, is affected by their lost film. I mean, you mentioned that she still is recognized as an historically significant, uh, kind of presence in the history of movies and especially of the, of the 19 teens and early 1920s. And I wonder, you know, are the, when you're focusing not just on a single film, but almost the entire creative output of a person, do you think that, uh, do you think that Theta Berra's reputation? Does this mean that it doesn't? It won't necessarily change if there isn't enough to evaluate over time. Is it kind of fixed in stone since we only have a limited number of, you know, materials to interpret? I mean, I guess that part of the fun of going back to old movies is, and the way that they're constantly being reevaluated is that we bring our own kind of contemporary perspectives to what qualifies as a good and interesting, a, a groundbreaking movie. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think the reputations of these lost careers will stand without the, the films on which their careers were based?
1: Well, the fact that their reputations survive, even though the bulk of their work is gone, I think, is a credit to the impact they made back in the day. Uh, Theda Barra's importance in the development of the, uh, the movie star system uh, is, is fixed and stolen. Even if all of her films were to be recovered and they turned out to be mediocre— That doesn't matter because she was the first one to be the big screen sex symbol. In case of people like Oscar Michaud, who was a pioneering African-American filmmaker, or Esther Eng, who was a pioneering Chinese-American female director, which was uh, highly unusual uh, in the 1930s and 40s when she was active, uh, we know these people as footnotes because of their sociological importance in the development of filmmaking. But uh, if we were to see their films, it would be very interesting to see just how good their movies were. Very few of Oscar Michaud's films still survive, and those that do survive, a lot of the critics that have seen it uh, aren't very impressed with it. Esther Eng's films are even more elusive. Uh, One or two of them are readily available, and the uh, the critical verdict is mixed on that. Uh, Their importance in film development may be more because of who they were and the fact that they were able to break racial and gender barriers to get to uh, stand behind the camera and actually create movies, whether they had created masterpieces that are lost to us, that's something that's uh, strictly for conjecture.
0: One of the few documentaries that you cover in your list of kind of lost films that you really wish were not lost is comes in the Miss Silent Films section of the book, um, and that is on a movie called Poro College in Moving Pictures and about a a woman named Annie Malone. I wonder if you could introduce our listeners to that movie I and mean, why why you picked that one for inclusion in the silent film section of the book.
1: That is one of the saddest stories in the book, and it's uh, one of the least known of the lost films. Uh, Annie Malone was the first African-American woman who achieved millionaire status, uh, and she did that by creating Poro College, which was the first school of higher education uh to help black women uh, gain careers uh, as hairdressers, actually. Uh, We think of uh, Madam C.J. Walker as being that pioneer, but actually Madam C.J. Walker learned her craft from Annie Malone at Poro College. Uh, Poro College was a major force in the African-American educational and entrepreneurial environment during the 1920s, and a documentary was created to uh, show how Annie Malone's life evolved to the point that she was able to uh, become this rich and important woman, and how Poro College was able to help so many black women gain a business education and get the skill set to start their own businesses, which was highly unusual back in the Jim Crow era. Uh, It was a silent film. It was made, I think, around 1927. We know that the film was still being shown as late as the 1930s, which was unusual for a silent movie. And unfortunately today, no print of the movie exists. We don't even know uh, who made the film. There were no credits have ever been recorded. There are no photos from the movie either, so we don't know what it looked like. And Annie Malone's place in history has uh, really been reduced almost to a footnote uh, because most people never heard of her. Uh, They they know about Madam C.J. Walker, who was a brilliant individual when it came to self-promotion, but... uh, Unfortunately, Annie Malone's main keystone in her self-promotion, the the movie Poro College in Moving Pictures, has disappeared, and very much so her place in history. And her story really needs to be uh, told. And if there was one of the films I really wish could be recovered, that would be the one.
0: Do you remember how you came across this particular film? Because especially in the kind of lost silent film section and reflecting on the Library of Congress study of lost American silent films, with so many films lost and just so much to wade through, to I know that you, some of your guiding principles were find or highlighting movies of social and cultural and uh, kind of political importance to the silent era, to that era of the nineteen teens and nineteen twenties. Uh, and I think you've articulated why this one kind of falls into that category. But I wonder how how did you how did you find this one in the first place?
1: There was a book published by the American Film Institute on. Uh, culturally significant movies focusing on America's non-white communities, uh, different racial and ethnic groups, and that was one of the films in there. And and a lot of the films in that book I was somewhat familiar with, but this one I had never heard of, and I had never heard of Poro, I never heard of Annie Malone, and started doing research and then started doing more research, and uh, I came to the conclusion that this is a story that really needs to be told.
0: Um, so in preparation for our conversation, I asked you to prepare a, a few of your, maybe your, your top five kind of most sought after lost films. And I wonder, you know, we've gone through the lost careers and missing silent film section. Uh, could you share some of those with us either? Maybe if you could include one from the sound film and missing sequences area as well, but I'd love to hear, you know, after going through hundreds of lost films, potential contenders, probably an even greater number for this book. Um, uh, what are the movies that, would be at the top of your list in terms of Well, obviously,
1: outside of Poro College and moving images, I would love to have seen the the original version of The Great Gatsby, which was made in 1926. Uh, This was made during the height of the Jazz Age. I suspect this was probably closer to what F. Scott Fitzgerald had in mind compared to the other film versions. Uh, There was one made in the 1940s, but unfortunately that had to be heavily censored because of production code uh, limitations. And there were later ones with Robert Redford in 1974 and Leonardo DiCaprio a few years ago, but that those really didn't reflect the spirit of the Fitzgerald novel. Uh, being so close to the era itself, actually being in the middle of the era, I suspect that version would have been uh, the best that exists. There's only a trailer that runs a little less than one minute that survives, and there are some scenes in there that show the party at uh, Gatsby's mansion, and it looked like Too much fun with all these flappers uh, jumping in and out of pools and running up and down stairs. And it must have been a a great film to watch. And I really uh, rue the fact that it's no longer with us. From the sound era, uh, I would love to see a film called uh, Brother Martin, which was uh, made in 1942. It was directed by uh, the great African-American filmmaker Spencer Williams. It's the only one of his films that's considered lost. This movie was made after uh, he had made The Blood of Jesus, which is considered today to be a classic of the African-American cinema. And Brother Martin was an unusual film because it was about a 17th century mixed race um, Catholic cleric. And it also included uh, scenes of black and white people going to church together and worshiping together, which was not something that Hollywood was making at the time. So it would been been very curious to see how he had created the film, because Blood of Jesus was sort of not only William's first film, but it was also the high point of his career. His subsequent movies were never quite as interesting or as artistically focused as that. So whether uh, this would have even been better than Blood of Jesus, that, again, that's some speculation. For films that are missing significant sequences, um, I'm a big fan of the 1963 film, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, that was originally handed to United Artists by its creator, Stanley Kramer, in a four-hour, one-minute version, and United Artists handed it back to him and said, no, you're going to have to edit this down. And uh, I would have loved to have seen what uh, what had gotten cut out of the film, because what's in the film is, is so priceless, and the film actually has gone through several edits over the years, so... Uh, this is a type of movie that uh, more is better, and I would have loved to have just seen the complete uh, vision, the craziness that he had been able to capture on screen
0: towards the those are great picks but I think the one that jumped to the top of my list uh, was the Dr. Strangelove uh, pie throwing <laughs> sequence oh, yeah. that has been excised I was completely unaware of this until uh, I saw Dr. Strangelove um, it's it's some anniversary the, I saw it at the North Haven movie theater and a friend of mine who's a big Kubrick fan had a book with some pictures of the pies laid out on the table and it does explain why they're all kind of surrounding that banquet table at the end I was a bit baffling at the end of Dr. Strangelove why that's there um, but you know Towards the beginning of the show, we spoke a bit about how movies are lost, uh, tied in with nitrate, the technology, the material itself, but also the neglect um, of a kind of disposable medium. But you also deal with, you know, even though this is about in search of lost films, you also talk about movies that are found and the actual, just the the process of finding movies. You. Describe a number of kind of miraculous rediscoveries of movies, including one in 1983 in Tyler, Texas, when this trove of nearly 100 movies, um, most of which were focused on that kind of that Spencer, what you're talking about with Spencer Williams movies, the kind of African-American um, kind of segregated theater circuit um, and production circuit. Uh, but you also talk about the role of Locke in finding movies in discarded, you know, the lost and found department at the New York City subway station for Shadows. <laughs> it was the original incredible. version
1: of Shadows, because John has made an earlier version of Shadows and then he remade the film. And the the earlier version, the 1959 version was considered lost. And somehow or other, somebody found it in the lost and found department of the New York subway. So, and that's the beautiful thing about recovering lost films. I mean, there are people who are out there doing very serious research, trying to track down where the films were last seen, et cetera, et cetera. But there have been cases where movies turn up uh, in the weirdest possible uh, locations. My favorite is uh, a 1933 Three Stooges movie called Hello Pop, which turned up in a garden shed in Sydney, Australia. And how it got down there, who knows. But uh, fortunately, the person who found it realized the value of it and was able to get it to the right people. And now the movie has been properly preserved and we can appreciate it.
0: You also speak or write quite a bit at length about uh, the role of international film repositories and being somehow a more reliable source of lost films than American studio repositories. And that being in the, when the studios were consolidating in the 1920s and also distributing films for international consumption uh, throughout the studio era, it was a lot more difficult for studios to kind of lock down control on prints once they sent them to Czechoslovakia or the Soviet Union um, or elsewhere in Europe or Asia. What, what, uh, what role do International kind of film repositories play in the kind of rediscovery of lost American films.
1: Well, many American silent films that had disappeared in this country survived because uh, somebody in Europe, in some cases in uh, other parts of the world, uh, liked the film so much they kept it, as opposed to sending it back to uh, Hollywood, which they are supposed to have done as part of the distribution contract. They kept the prints, they gave them to museums, they created film archives to deposit them, they preserved them correctly, they didn't have them in too warm of a room so they could uh, deteriorate or go burst into flames. And when Hollywood realized that so many of their classics were gone, they started making inquiries around the world, and lo and behold, these uh, films turned up in the Netherlands, in the Czech Republic, in Russia, Uh, some were found in Australia and New Zealand as well. And they were able to, uh, to bring them back to this country, restore them, and now we're able to appreciate them. Uh, maybe it's a European thing or an Australian thing not to throw anything away that's considered a value as opposed to the disposable consumer culture we have in this country, but uh, more power to them. Uh, thanks to the folks overseas, we're able to have a great deal of our cultural heritage, which would have been lost.
0: Uh, as we wind down the interview, I, I want to make sure to sneak in one, one more question, kind of getting back to that idea of what you were looking to accomplish when you set out to to write this book and to research these movies. And that question is going to come in the form of two quick quotations. One is one that you use in the book from uh, an online sleuth named Captain Obscurity, <laughs> who yeah. who pursues this lost film called Him, which may be a conversation for another time. But uh, at the end of that chapter, he says... It's the search I love more than anything. The film is just a MacGuffin. Uh, the other quote I want to throw at you is from Frank Thompson the end of his introduction to Lost Films. He writes, Lost Films, then, is not simply a nostalgic look backward, but an indictment of the ignorance and neglect that led to the destruction of so much irreplaceable treasure. And I wonder if you could respond a bit to both of those. Is the, Are the films MacGuffins here? Is it the search that you're in it for? And also, is this book an indictment of... Uh, you know, a cultural uh, memory and preservation that has been insufficient for such an important art No,
1: and I hate to disagree with Frank about that, but uh, it would only be an indictment if we view what had happened through the 2016 mind frame. As I had mentioned earlier, back in the 20s or the 30s, even as late as the 40s, there was a very different consideration of storage of the commercial value of the film's Back then, films really were not considered to be an art form. They, it, Show business was a business, and people didn't make films because they wanted to make an artistic statement. They made films because they wanted to make a, a buck. And uh, if the films weren't making money from them, what's the point of keeping them? That's how people used to think back then. Today, of course, we look at things very differently. So I can't condemn or indict anybody from a century or so back for doing uh, what they did because, quite frankly, they didn't know any better. There was still a very new medium With the uh, Captain Obscurity search, uh, unfortunately, some lost films that have turned up have been disappointing. But some films that have turned up have also been uh, extraordinary, Uh, most notably a film called Kukan, which was a 1941 movie. It was the first documentary to win the Academy Award as Best Documentary, and it was lost for a number of years, and it was actually... uh, tracked down by a Hawaiian filmmaker named Robin Lung, who has uh, since created a documentary called Finding Kukan, which I have to say I have a a small role in talking about Kukan's uh, historic value. That's currently on the uh, festival circuit. Hopefully it will be in wider release in 2017. And that will bring people uh, to a greater appreciation of what was lost and the possibility that some stuff may not have been lost forever, and there's always a hope that we could find something uh, that had uh, slipped away from us, and we can bring it back and give it a brand new appreciation. Phil Hall
0: is a film writer and journalist and podcast host, and a number of other things. Um, his new book is In Search of Lost Films. Phil, where can people find your writing, uh, other things that you do, and, and where can they find the book?
1: Okay. Um, In Search of Lost Films is published by Bear Manor Media. You can find it on Amazon, on the BearmanorMedia.com website or any of the e-commerce sites where you can get new books. My other endeavors, the online movie show with Phil Hall is on SoundCloud. Just do a quick Google online movie show with Phil Hall and you'll be able to find that. We have a new episode every Monday. I am writing for Cinema Crazed and for the film Snobbery, which are two websites, as well as for Video Librarian, which is a magazine. And, uh, Basically, you can connect with me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Phil Hall.
0: We will make sure to post links to all of that stuff on deepfocusradio.com. Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, coming up next is a review of the new movie Loving uh, with myself and Alan Powell and Lucy Gelman. But first, let's hear a song from Elton Jackson called Man from Lowell.
2: Hungry would you turn in my own you see please know that i am weak there's nothing but the sky above to blame
0: welcome back to deep focus a radio show about movies at new haven i'm your host tom breen Loving, a new movie from director Jeff Nichols, tells the story of Richard and Mildred Loving, an interracial couple in 1950s rural Virginia who seek to marry, live together, and raise a family, despite the state's anti-miscegenation laws. Ultimately, their quiet persistence in their relationship would change the U.S. Constitution, helping it bend, to paraphrase, Martin Luther King Jr. a bit more towards justice. For a movie ostensibly about a landmark Supreme Court case that abolished state laws prohibiting interracial marriage, Loving is surprisingly free of courtroom drama. The focus is almost never on the lawyers or any other civil rights advocates who articulate the intellectual and legal and emotional arguments against such explicitly racist legislation. In fact, there's little articulation at all in Loving. Instead, Nichols spends the movie following the taciturn couple at the center of the case— played by Joel Edgerton and Ruth Naga, a white construction worker and black seamstress whose love for one another is expressed more through gesture than through dialogue. So, Alan, I I wonder if we could start our review by talking about Nichols' approach to telling this story. Did you find yourself immersed and kind of interested in this day-to-day, year-to-year, simmering tension between dignity and fear and ordinary life? Or did you find yourself longing for a charismatic advocate to erupt through the screen to tell the audience uh, what the moral of the story was. No,
3: I, I, I think the, the key, I love the movie, and I think the, the key word that you used in your introduction is taciturn, which was really, um, uh, w- w- what drew me into the movie was how quiet it is, and um, it, you know what's coming. Uh, so uh, it's, it's kind of a wonderful surprise that it, it's not a courtroom drama, a drama. And I would even say that, um, if the movie has any weaknesses, and it's a big, it's a big, uh, it's a big studio film, um, but it really is true to its quiet style. It's true to telling the story through the the relationship of these people, um, and the I, one of the, the the great power of the film, I think, in part is uh, uh, in the choice that they made not to make it a a, um, a uh, courtroom drama, because when people are really quiet and and Joel Edgerton his role the actor who plays uh, Richard Loving i mean he's 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 unnervingly quiet so whenever he speaks it's like the sibylline oracle now you pay attention when both these people speak
0: his his big kind of climactic speech at the end is he turns with cigarette in hand and says tell the judge I love my wife. <laughs> and that's right. that's, 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 right. that's the big moment, right? But it's delivered, you know, that moment really lands because he's said so little over the course of the movie, right? And right. you know that whenever he is going to put, you know, words to someone else's ears, it's going to be something that he really deeply feels and, and, and he's always feels films, strongly about.
3: Yes, he's always filmed sideways. And that remark is to the lawyer, to the young lawyer, wet behind the ears lawyer, Bernard Cohen, who says to him, he's just flabbergasted that he's not, that the, his client is not elated. And he says, what, what, what should I tell the Supreme Court? And um, he says, tell them I love my wife. But he says it not even looking at him. He has to turn to face the lawyer and the camera. So it's not just a, a paucity of words. It's, it, it's a kind of um, uh, paucity of gesture almost.
0: Lucy, when we left the movie, I, one of the kind of lingering critiques of it that I've heard and, and very much disagree with, but I, I wanted to get your opinion on was that The representation of this rural kind of Virginia couple is so simple, almost to the point of patronizing, that these people are presented as not just ordinary people, not just like not civil rights kind of pioneers, but people with maybe not a lot of Mental faculties, you know people who you know i was thinking back to our review of hacksaw ridge mm-hmm. and i think that the representation of a kind of rural southerner there is much more offensive and simplified with this kind of bumbling happy-go-lucky character played by andrew garfield who just kind of walks in with this huge grin on his face there's not a lot of grinning in this movie but did you find the representation of the character's ordinariness uh not necessarily historically accurate but did you find it kind of true to the story being told
4: yeah i I mean, I, I think knowing after the fact also that both of the actors did a great deal of character study can't not go into how I'm thinking about this. And maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe that's a good thing. But um, no, I, I mean, I, I didn't find the characters um, operating in stereotype. I didn't find them overly simplistic. I think perhaps that um, sort of criticism of the film comes from the fact that in this country we have an overly simplistic connection between um, maybe thinking, you know, uh, simple talking folk, and I'm saying that in scare quotes, uh, air quotes, sorry, uh, which no one can see, of course, from the studio. Um, we have we have this connection, or or we make this we in the media often make this connection between that and um, and intelligence, and then sort of um, a human's capacity to um, to kind of have like have big thoughts or be capable of big things. This is a huge case, but at the end of the day, it's that this couple really loves each other, and they just want to be together, and they don't want people to persecute them for it. And I think, in that way, the um, the fact that these are, you know, normal or or maybe even we might say simple characters is really, really powerful. I also just don't think that um, that it is ever good to make a kind of a quick and maybe rash judgment that. Um, that someone who you know has a southern drawl and uh, and doesn't use big words is any less than someone else who might be from Manhattan.
3: There, there is something strange about them. I, I think it's 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 fair to say. I, I mean, I, I I don't know the history of the of the the legal history of the case, but uh, to make these precedent citing cases at the Supreme Court, lawyers often wait for like the perfect case, the perfect couple, and they need a couple uh, where there is genuine love and simplicity uh who would uh, um you know represent everybody i think and, and that's the case what's unusual about this couple and the dynamic you're pointing out tom is accurate i think there is a dynamic um but it's the, they like the simple country ways for their boys to grow up in it's that as opposed to washington dc where they live in a kind of um, uh, tough street and there is no grass for the kids to run on.
0: Could you, could you pull that mic up a little bit? You're kind of drifting a little. But yes, yes, I, I, sure. Actually, I, w- I want to get this. Um, okay. I, so in... Sunset Boulevard, a m- movie by Billy Wilder uh, from the m- mid-century. Von Eric von Stroheim. But we have uh, Gloria Swanson playing this kind of decaying, great, glorious old movie star. And she says, you know, back in my day, we didn't need talking pictures. We didn't hmm. need words, right? We that's had right. We had faces. And I think that, and yeah, that is said, that's said in a somewhat tongue-in-cheek and also uh, kind of self-parodying way in that Billy Wilder's not necessarily (laughs) looking to say that she is the great actress, but I think that that gets at a type of acting that is uniquely cinematic and that Ruth Nega in particular really exemplifies in this movie in that she communicates so much through close-ups on her face and not through words. I think this movie begins and ends with close-ups of the profile of Ruth Nega's face with her telling Joel Edgerton's character that she's pregnant and all of the the pensiveness and and the concern and the excitement, and then it ends with her having gotten the phone call that they've won the Supreme Court case, and of course she just says that's fine, and well, she hangs up, and then she looks out at him in the field playing with her boys, and you know everything communicated through just the dynamics of that face, uh, right. the entire spectrum of emotion that people are capable of. Uh, what do you what do you think of, of Ruth Negga's performance after my? Uh, I, I thought preview. she was
3: great. Actually, I was totally focused on Joel Edgerton. I knew she 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 was great but but you almost uh, there was nothing surprising about her appearance and how, and she, uh, how she uses her face the incredible thing about the Joel Edgerton character and this is what I was trying to get at before I was in a violation of microphone rules here um is that he is the most you, you see his face a lot and he is the most unlikely man to be in love with this woman he's so uh, i mean the unusual thing is that he looks like he could be cast in, a, in, a, in as the uh, the ringleader of the Ku Klux Klan, who would burn down the house of a uh, of a black family. Uh, he's very fair, his face is lined. He, uh, but he 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 doesn't he doesn't have you know. Actually, if the movie has any kind of area that you would wanted to explore more, it's like who is this guy? How did he in fact become, in effect, almost a white Negro? And he's very fair. We know a little bit about his mother, who seems to be the local midwife. Maybe she was the abortionist. Who knows? But she served uh, white people, maybe black people. His father worked for a nigger. We, we find out in one of the most harrowing scenes where the sheriff reads the riot act to them about miscegenation. But we know very little else about this guy. And he looks so tough, and he's a bricklayer, and yet he's full of such tenderness. Um, his was the face that... Um, got my attention more than than Ruth Negus.
0: You know, Lucy, when Arnold Arnold Gorlick and I saw this movie for the first time up at the Toronto Film Festival, and that was Arnold's initial reaction as well. He really loved it. He loved how kind of uh, ordinary and subtle and deliberate the movie was, but he didn't understand how this character, Joel Edgerton's uh, Richard Loving, how he fit into this world in such a segregated society. And I think that that was something that that didn't bother me the first time around and didn't bother me the for the repeat viewing as well. And I think that it comes through in in Edgerton's performance as someone who is simple, but also someone with a tremendous amount of uh, both dignity and humility. He is and- someone who who gets along with everyone regardless of what they look like or how they act. And I think that there's something about, you know, the movie is uh, kind of delivered to the audience through the uh, kind of simplicity and deliberateness of this main character. It's almost like we are, we are getting this movie filtered through the perspective of Richard Loving. Not necessarily that we see what he sees, but I feel like the tempo at which he lives his life is the way that we get this movie. And I, you know, from the opening scenes in which he's fixing the car and participating in drag race cars. Here, I've I've never seen cars and speeding cars used so well to connote slowness and deliberateness, and that the car is not necessarily a symbol of speed for him. It's a hobby. It's something that he dedicates a lot of time to. It's something he derives a lot of personal satisfaction from.
4: But also, you know, his profession, he is he works in construction and bricklaying and the repeated image of the level cannot be underestimated as a symbol in this movie. He is incredibly even keeled in an environment of monumental intolerance.
0: And also, we always see that trowel scraping off the excess cement, right? He's always building houses, other people's houses, houses that he cannot build for himself because of these anti-miscegenation laws. But you're totally right. The focus on that trowel, it's just one of the many beautiful little symbols that we can kind of luxuriate in when we're not bombarded with a lot of kind of big... That's
3: right. And there's actually, they use the brick, I think, as a little symbol after the the case is decided, this incredibly precedent-setting case is totally decided, and she communicates it to him after receiving a phone call from the lawyer. And she just stands on the porch and conveys it with the gaze in her eyes. And you see him putting a brick on a growing wall. And it's as if to say, this case is one more brick that we have. Uh, it's our brick that we've laid in the edifice of, the, of civil rights. But um, it is unusual that he doesn't have a white friend in sight. And if the movie has a weak scene it's the scene in which her her, her relatives um, are sitting around the table. It's the guy's night out there drinking, drinking rather heavily. And um, one of the black guys turns to Richard Loving and says, you know, you're white. You know, you are white. Uh, people can tell you all you, you you can solve your problem by divorcing her. They tell you what you can do. They tell us what we can't do. And they remind him that he's white, but he doesn't seem to feel white. He's he, you know. There was a great essay by Norman Mailer called "The White Negro" in the nineteen sixties. Who just somebody who is totally identified with this world, because he is. And you know, you you see him leaving work five or six times in the course of the movie, and he's always leaving the white bricklayers going home to the black part of town where he lives.
0: And yet, of course, the affinity is not one of kind of unique attraction to a different culture. It's just. He is a human, and he seems to be attracted to other humans. Um, I th- I feel like he almost exists at that level of simplicity. I, Lucy, I want to give you the last word, and that is about a character that I think you really responded well to, and a part that I really liked. But maybe you know tonally, it may seem like a bit of a shift, and that we get this this quick talking comedic character played by Nick Kroll, Bernie Cohen, the lawyer. Uh, how how did you respond to the maybe last third of the movie in which we are introduced to the the court case? Um, but we also get a character who maybe offers a balance to the stolidity of our two main characters but also could maybe he throws everything off
4: yeah I, I totally wasn't expecting it in this movie that is about a court case that um, still has incredible gravity when you talk about it and, and when you think about it and when you learn about it in US history courses um, I loved this character it was so funny he so um so Nick
0: Kroll, Nick crawl Kroll. he's a comedian, stand-up comedian is, yeah.
4: so his character Bernard Cohen is like this East coast Jew fast talking lawyer who is so eager. He's so eager to go to the Supreme court. And, and just like you see that and he's chomping at the bit and he so does not appreciate the, um, the amount of just like racist BS that this couple has already had to withstand in, you know, in in five years of just trying to be together and being thrown in prison for something very simple, like trying to deliver a child in the same house where there are white people and black people. Um. So so to see him kind of be totally tone deaf and then get it at the end and deliver um, comedy in a movie where I think it is very hard to find the right person to do that, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I cannot recommend this, this movie highly enough, but do bring a box of tissues.
3: Oh, no tissues, but we do love Loving.
0: <laughs> it's that time of year. The, the big movies are coming out. Loving, I think, definitely gets a recommendation from all three of us. I think but...
4: this is precedent setting. It's the first time Alan and Paul and I have <laughs> ever agreed on a film.
0: But not the tissues. We'll we'll see next week if we can keep this streak alive. Thank you so much for listening to Deep Focus. You can find a complete archive of all previous episodes at deepfocusradio.com. Coming up next is Elise's cocktail hour.